following audio is from the Anglican Church, Caroline Springs. For more information about the church, go to taccs.org.au. I wonder uh, what comes to mind when I say the word hypocrite. What picture, what image, what kind of person comes to mind when you hear the word hypocrite? The word actually comes from the original ancient Greek word, word uh, Hippocrates, which, which was a, a name for an actor who specialised in um, a diversity of roles on the stage. And so they would use, in the ancient Greek world, different masks to play different characters. And so that's where we get the word hypocrite. It's, it's used for a person who appears to be different depending on the context. I've got a, a, a degree in hypocrisy. And uh, I remember very clearly when I first became a Christian as a 19-year-old, that was one of the first things that God revealed to me was my hypocrisy. One of the things that I really struggled with and do to this day is uh, controlling my tongue. I've got a tongue. I've got a way with words that can be used for, for great evil. And uh, I remember clearly this one situation where I think I was 21 years old. I'd been a Christian for maybe a year or two, and um, I was actively um, involved in ministry in the church by that time, and we had this thing on during the summer where we would have this social event, and it was a big invite-a-friend kind of thing for people at church. So all the young adults, all the uni students would bring along their friends who didn't know Jesus, and the idea was that we would get together, we would uh, have a pool party in this case, and uh, it would be a chance to engage people and and, and let them know what the church was about and have a little talk, a discussion about who Jesus is. And so we did that, and it was at a friend's house. It was a great night. Pool party was rocking. There was lots of visitors there, and I had the, the, the privilege of leading the discussion. And so I was leading this thing, and I was excited, and I was talking about who Jesus is and sharing my passion for who he is and sharing my story about how he had saved me and forgiven me and restored me and redeemed me, and it was going really well and the discussion was open and engaging and respectful and then at the end of the night we were just kind of hanging out it was winding down and there was a guy in our church who wasn't there that night and this guy was my arch nemesis because he was better looking than me smarter than me a better speaker than me good at every sport that there is on the planet. Right? One of those guys, oh, musician as well. So just, just money with the ladies and, 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 and the object of my hatred because of his superiority in everything. But he wasn't there that night, so he was my opportunity. He was my stage to get one up. And for the rest of that night, for a prolonged period of time, I absolutely verbally assassinated him. Just the, 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 the good vibes were flowing. I'd, I'd knocked the talk out of the park and, you know, everything was buzzing. And, and so I took advantage of that and I just, I just cut this guy down at every opportunity. Made fun of him. Knew a few things about him that were a bit embarrassing. Let everyone know about them. And so I walked out of that place that night feeling really good, really good. I was getting a few runs on the board in terms of preaching and communicating and I uh, got a few slaps on the back on the way out. There was a girl there um, who, I was, who I was really trying to impress and, um, and, and she was loving everything that I was laying out, right? And, and so just feeling, feeling really good. And then on my way out, I was one of the last to leave that night. We'd packed up. And I got to my car, and there was a little note under my windscreen wiper. And I kind of thought, huh, this girl's dropped her number or something. Right? I was pretty impressive tonight. And I opened the note, and it wasn't a phone number. It wasn't a love letter. It wasn't a word of encouragement. I still to this day don't know who wrote it. But it just very gently but very clearly illuminated my hypocrisy. 
very gently but very clearly let me know that I had been a complete hypocrite that night. Talking about the love of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus, the acceptance of Jesus, the fact that I had been redeemed, restored, made new. And then in the very next breath, completely destroying a brother in front of everybody else. And I remember just sitting there being absolutely cut to the heart and just having my head on the dashboard in silence as God just ripped me open. My hypocrisy had been exposed. My sin was before me and I couldn't just ignore it. I wonder if you've ever had that kind of moment before. If you're a Christian here this morning, I wonder if you've ever had that moment where God just rips open your heart and in love destroys you. We're going to look at this famous passage in John's Gospel this morning. It's a very short passage, but I know for myself as a new Christian reading the Gospel of John for the first time, this is a story that really, really stuck out to me, really, really affected me. And this morning, I just want to take us through it, just verse by verse, and see, see what God has for us in His Word this morning. So just to set up a little bit of context for you, as Jimmy said, this series is all about who Jesus is. We're asking the question, who is Jesus? And we know from John that his whole Gospel was written with this purpose. He wants us to ask the question over and over again, who is Jesus? When we see him performing these miracles, what John calls signs, uh, he wants us to be asking the question, who is this man? Who is he? Who is this man who performs these miracles? Who is this man who says these things? Ultimately, who is this man who dies on a cross and then is raised to new life on Easter Sunday? Who is Jesus? So on Friday, Jimmy opened uh, John chapter 7 for us. And in John chapter 7, verse 37, Jesus stands up at this huge feast of tabernacles, this big national holiday, eight-day holiday. You think a three-day weekend is a big deal? You think Easter is a big deal? This is an eight-day national festival. And Jesus stands up on the eighth day. And he he cried out in a loud voice, verse 37, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And Jimmy really helpfully outlined for us, you can grab the talk on our website if you're interested, that, that everyone on the planet is thirsty. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. And the truth is that everyone is thirsty. Everyone is lacking. Everyone is hungry for something more. It drives the worldwide economy. That's something that we're missing. If we just had it, we would be satisfied. And Jimmy said for us last week, Jesus is that satisfaction. He is that long cold drink at the end of a hot summer's day. Jesus stands up in the aridity of the Middle East in the ancient world and says, if anyone's thirsty in this desert, come to me and drink. You will have eternal thirst-quenching satisfaction. And just as in our day today, where everyone is thirsting, I mean everyone is thirsting for more, the same was true in Jesus' day. And so the the morning after he stood up and said those things, early in the morning, John says, a crowd comes to him. They want their thirst quenched. They want to be satisfied. And so they come to Jesus so that he can fulfill his promise. Let's check it out together. Chapter 8, verse 2. It should be on the screen or follow along in the Bible. Early in the morning, John says, Jesus came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. 
What's Jesus' answer for their thirst, right? These people have said, yes, I'm thirsty. I've signed up for this thirst-quenching thing that you've got going on. I want you to answer your, you know, provide the answer for all of my needs. And Jesus says, sit down and hear the word of God. Jesus' miracles were amazing. His healings were incredible. But his answer for people's longings is to open the Word of God. He wants to teach them. And you'll see this right throughout all of the Gospels. Jesus, first and foremost, wants people to know the truth about who God is and what He's done. And so He goes to the temple, He sits them down, and He teaches You're going to find if you stick around here at our church, one of our core values is teaching God's Word. We love teaching and preaching. We love opening the Word of God in small groups, one-to-one during the week. And on Sundays, we give a lot of time to the teaching of God's Word. And some people have come along and been a little bit freaked out by the fact that sometimes we preach like up to an hour or more sometimes. And it's not what they're used to, and it feels a bit weird. And, and people will say, well, you know, people can't concentrate for more than six consecutive minutes, right? But something I've seen over the last couple of years is this big emphasis as a core value, having the teaching of God's Word, that people have been satisfied in a way that they would not have been if we merely entertained them, if we merely built community for them, if we merely... Um, fed people's felt needs, then they wouldn't be satisfied in the way that they have been simply through sitting down and hearing God's words, sitting down at home and reading God's words. That's Jesus' answer for these thirsty people. Hear the word of God. And so this morning, before we got together this morning when we were praying, we were praying that God's word would just flow out and quench people's thirsts. That that longing that you feel inside will be quenched, not just by filling your heads with knowledge, but by seeing and knowing and believing and trusting and relating to the God who is revealed in the words of Scripture. Jesus knows that's what we need, and so He sits down and He teaches them, but... He doesn't get very far before he's interrupted. Let's see verse 3 to 5. The scribes and the Pharisees, that's the religious leaders of the day. They're they're the guys up the front with the, the collars on, right? They're the guys standing up and teaching. They're the guys who had memorized the entire Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. These are the church boys. They come in and they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, it commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? So you've just got to imagine this scene. It's horrific. Right In the middle of the temple, Jesus is teaching the people. These are thirsty people. These are needy people. These are people who spiritually know that they're not satisfied. They need more. They need God. And so they see in Jesus, God in human flesh, they trust Him and His promise that He'll satisfy them. And so they gather early in the morning, like earlier than 10 o'clock. Can you imagine that? They're being taught by him. And into the middle of this, a bunch of guys walk in in robes, dragging a woman caught in adultery. Imagine what that looks like. I mean, she was caught in adultery. Not on the way to commit adultery. In adultery. Adultery is a, is a nice word we use so we don't blush. She was caught having sex with a man who wasn't her husband. She was caught having sexual intercourse with a man who wasn't her husband. She's likely naked. She's been dragged into the middle of this religious ceremony. 
And these men, these righteous men, these religious men, these church boys have a question for Jesus. What shall we do with this woman, Jesus? Now, that scene is horrific, right? But it's also not that weird for this reason. Jesus was, had taken up for himself the position of a rabbi. He hadn't done any of the rabbinical training. He hadn't been to the equivalent of Bible college like I had to for five years, right, just to earn my stripes. He didn't do that. He didn't need to do that. And so he had taken up for himself the role of rabbi. Teacher is what rabbi means. And the role of the rabbi in Jesus' day was to very often adjudicate on matters of morality and law. And so... uh, People would come to rabbis and say, listen, we've got this tricky situation. We're not sure exactly how the law of Moses applies to this. We're not sure exactly how the law of the scribes and the Pharisees uh, applies to this. Can you figure this out for us? And so they would sit as a kind of adjudicator, mediator, judge in situations like that. So the, 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 the scene itself isn't so weird. These men at least appear to want Jesus' wisdom in this situation. And so they say to him, Rabbi, teacher. I can imagine them just going like this, a bit of sarcasm. Teacher, who hasn't done any of the Bible college training that I've done. You arrogant peasant. (laughs) What should we do? The law of Moses says this. And so they appear to be men who are very concerned for the religious righteousness of this situation. They're concerned that the right thing is done. Jesus, help us. We want the right outcome in this situation. Here's the problem with this thing. Here's what should tip us off that they're not really genuine in their appearance. First question is, where's the dude? Right? Where's the man? She's been caught in the act of adultery. Presumably, he was there, right? It's not adultery if he's not there. It's a whole other question, right? But it's adultery if he's there. And the law of Moses, which they rightly appeal to, very clearly Leviticus, uh, sorry, Deuteronomy 17, 22, says that the man and the woman must be punished for their sin. This wasn't some kind of patriarchal society where only the women got, you know, the bullet. No, man and woman, both transgressors, both involved very much cooperating in this act of adultery, this sin. But where's the man? No, no, they've just dragged this woman in to use her. They're not concerned that the right thing be done, otherwise they'd have the guy there, as well as the woman. Her guilt is not in question, but if they're so keen for righteousness to be done, if they're so keen for justice to be meted out, then where is the dude? And so, to Jesus and to John, it's very clear what's going on here. These men have set up a very clever, very effective trap. It's exactly what John says in verse 6. He says, This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Other translations will say, This they did to trap him, to ensnare him. This they did to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Ever since Jesus in chapter 5 of John healed a man on the Sabbath, thereby breaking the law of the Pharisees for the sake of compassion and healing, for the sake of pointing people to the reality of his divinity, 
these scribes, these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, these good church boys have been out to kill Jesus. And so John rightly says this they did to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And here's the brilliance of their plan. If it works, either way he goes, they will have a charge to bring against him. Here's why. The law of Moses demands that the woman, as well as the man, be stoned to death. That's how serious sin is in God's eyes. The judgment for sin is death. And so according to the law of Moses, Jesus must say, yes, where is this guy? Let's get him in as well. You got the rocks? Let's do it. But, in the first century, Jerusalem, in fact, Israel, is occupied by the Roman authorities. It's it's occupied by the Roman government and their armies. And the Romans forbid stoning people to death, according to the law of Moses. They forbid it. It's against the law. So, if Jesus says, let's get the rocks then he will likely be killed by the Romans for transgressing their laws. They are very, very tetchy about this at at this point in time. There are a number of Jewish uprisings in the capital, in uh, Jerusalem. There are a number of zealots, rival gangs, who are taking Roman soldiers out, who are, through kind of guerrilla warfare, trying to get the Romans out of their city. And so the Romans are knuckling down on these guys. You've got a Jewish leader who's got a bit of a following. He's a bit famous by now. If he says, yeah, screw the Romans, let's just do this thing, then he will be dead. They'll have a charge to bring against him and they'll be all too eager to tell the Romans all about it. If he denies that they should stone her, then he'll likely be lynched by his own people, by the Jews, for transgressing the law of Moses. Publicly, in the temple, saying, no, don't worry about it. Forget Moses. Forget the law. So either way, they've got a charge to bring against him. Either to the Romans or to the Jewish officials, both of whom can have him killed on that day. So it's a clever trap, huh? These guys are good. At this point, I just imagine Jesus getting really, really angry. You know, Jesus gets angry. All those pictures of him with long, flowing, pantene hair holding lambs, they've been misleading you. Jesus was gentle, he was meek, he was compassionate. As we're going to see as he deals with this woman, he was also righteously angry. Remember him driving people out of the temple with a whip because they turned it into an extortionate business? Just imagine get Jesus getting very, very angry. And it's not because he's been trapped. They've tried to trap him many times. He just walks. It's because of the utter hypocrisy of these men. Once a year, we get to run this course here at the church called the Alpha Course. It's a great course for people who want to know more about who Jesus is. So we invite people from our church to come and hear, again, what basic Christianity is all about. It runs over about 10 weeks. And we also really encourage people who wouldn't call themselves Christians to come along, ask questions, debate, argue, like everything's on the table, no one's going to judge you. We're just here to facilitate you to know more about who Jesus is. And so... It's a great thing that we get to participate in. It's something that I've had the pleasure of uh, participating in over the years. And you know what? You know what? The, the number one most common objection that non-Christians have to Christian faith. You know what the number one objection is to Christian faith? Anyone got a guess? This is the bit where we interact. 
Right, hypocrisy, number one. In the church, that's it. Creation versus evolution, religion versus faith, uh, sorry, religion versus science. No. The problem of suffering, the problem of poverty, the problem of war. No. Sex ethics. Homosexuality. None of those things make it to the top spot. In my experience, the number one objection people have is Christians themselves. They're just a bunch of hypocrites, they say. I've got to know some Christians. I went to church a few times, and they're just a bunch of hypocrites. They talk about love, they talk about forgiveness, and all they do is judge. I was never welcomed when I went to church. The guy just stood up the front and yelled at me and condemned me. Hypocrites. That should give us pause for a minute. If you're a normal human being, your mind will go to everyone else in this church who's a hypocrite, right? We need to turn the mirror on ourselves. Now, of course... The people who accuse Christians of being hypocrites are absolute hypocrites themselves, right? You just need to have a 10-minute conversation and you will see hypocrisy threaded and weaved through every one of their presuppositions and arguments. That's not the point. The point is that Christians are called to more than that. They're called to something different than that. They're called to live as Jesus lived. What did Jesus say? By this you will know that uh, people will know that you are my, my disciples if you love one another, if you live like I have lived, if you follow me, then people will know, no, that's a real disciple of Jesus. That's not just one of those religious nut jobs. One of those judgmental, dismissive religious guys. And I think this is the reason that hypocrisy is the thing that gets Jesus the most worked up. It was hypocrisy that made him make a whip and drive those people out of the temple. It was the hypocrisy of it. It's the hypocrisy that leads him to say, let me read it for you. Matthew 23. Jesus goes on this tirade against these very men who have tried to trap him in Matthew 23. Listen to verse 13 to 15. He says, he's got to imagine this. This untrained upstart from the countryside, carpenter, walking in to the midst of the most religious people in the world. The religious elite. And they're not dressed in black, twisting their moustaches, trying to figure out ways to... Right? They're not those guys. They are the most respected men in the world. And Jesus goes to them and he says, squares up to them and says, Woe to you. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across the sea and land to make a single convert, and when he becomes a convert, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Jesus, Jesus, meek and mild. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! If you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence, you blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but 
within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. It's Jesus getting a little worked up. Hypocrites. And so I just imagine him getting a little tense. Here's the thing about hypocrites and Jesus. Four things about hypocrites and Jesus. Number one, everyone's a hypocrite. When we're feeling a bit clever and people say to us, oh, the church is just full of hypocrites, one of our comebacks is, yeah, come and join us. You'll feel right at home. Which maybe isn't the best thing to say to someone in that situation because you're probably just going to turn them away and confirm what they already believe about you. But it's true, isn't it? Everyone's a hypocrite. There is no one who completely lives up to what they espouse. No one is completely genuine. Everyone's a hypocrite, number one. Number two, Jesus isn't. Jesus isn't a hypocrite. There are four books written about his life. You won't find one instance of hypocrisy. These are eyewitness historical accounts that could have been torn to shreds by people who were still alive and knew Jesus when they were published. And no one said, hang on a second, Jesus wasn't this good. He's not. Listen, he was the guy who said, as he taught people on that, in that great sermon on the mountain, Matthew 5 and 6 and 7, he said, love your enemies, pray for them, and forgive them. Love your enemies. And there are people in your family that you don't want to love. And he says, love your enemies, pray for them, forgive them. And then as he's hanging on the cross on Friday, in the most excruciating, out of the cross pain, he says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. That's got to be the best test of hypocrisy right there. Like under the most torturous death, he doesn't break. He doesn't say, oh, screw you all, I hate your guts. No, he says, Father, forgive them. Love your enemies, pray for them and forgive them. Complete alignment with what he espouses and what he does. No one's ever seen that before. That's why a peasant in first century Jerusalem has changed the history of the world. No one ever spoke like this man. No one ever lived like this man. Everyone's a hypocrite. Jesus isn't, and he sees, number three, he sees the heart. How good are we at putting on appearances? Right? I'm, I'm professionally religious. I know all about this. All right? I can see you down the street, smile warmly, shake your hand, peace be with you, my son, and then walk away going, oh, I hate that guy. Right? It's my job to at least appear religious, but Jesus sees through all of that junk. Jesus sees through all of that facade. You see this right throughout the Gospels. People try and fake it with Jesus and he just sees straight through it. You remember a couple of weeks ago, Jesus fed the 5,000 or up 20 plus thousand people. A huge crowd comes to him the next day. We want to be your followers. And John says, Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he knows men's hearts. He knows our hearts. He sees our hearts. So even the best hypocrites, like the ones who have brought this woman in, don't stand a chance. And that's number four. Then, 
in Jesus' day and today, when hypocrites meet Jesus, they're on dangerous ground. When hypocrites meet Jesus, they're on dangerous ground in Jesus' day and in our day. When you come face to face with Jesus, when you read about him in his word, he will expose your hypocrisy. He will. He'll look right through your facade. He'll look right through that whitewashed tomb and he'll see the dead bones inside. And so Jesus sees these hypocrites who have brought this woman in to the temple. And in verse 6, he turns the tables on them. So John says, this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. They come in, they pose the question, they've got everyone's attention, they've, the, the trap has been set. Either way, he's dead, we've got him. And Jesus crouches down and writes in the dust. A lot of scholars have spent a lot of time trying to figure out what he wrote. The truth is no one has any idea. It's interesting that the Greek word that John uses for the word write isn't the normal word for write. It's actually the word that you use if if you're writing an account against someone. If someone was going to write out some lines of evidence to condemn someone, that's, that's the word he uses. So some have stipulated that he's writing out the sins of the men that are before him, exposing them. Other people say that he's writing out scripture. I just think, I like to think he's just, he just needs to take a break so he doesn't punch someone in the face. That's what I, that's what I like to think. He wasn't really writing anything, he's just, Lord, give me strength. I struggle with anger, so I'm just projecting a lot of this onto you guys this morning. If ever you say something to me and you just see my Jaw muscles flex, that's what I do. So he bends down, he writes in the dust. We don't know what he wrote. But they keep at him. They're not going to just let him say nothing. The trap is set. And so verse 7 and 8. And they continue to ask him. As they continue to ask him. He stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Very famous saying. It's entered into our modern day languages, hasn't it? You'll often hear, especially when one of our heroes, like a footballer, commit some sort of indiscretion, people will be first to say, well, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. We like to protect our idols, all right? So if you're without sin, you throw a stone at him. What Jesus does is stand up face to face with the men who would have him dead, looks them in the eye and says, let him who is out." without sin, cast the first stone. In effect, he's saying, let's do this. Let's do this. Let's do it by the law. Deuteronomy 17.7 Whoever discovers the man and the woman in adultery should be the first to stone her. Whoever finds them in the act is the first one to throw the stone. This is the law. And so he says, let's do it. You got those stones? Let's do it. You found her. You brought her. You be the first one to throw it. But, but before we figure out the lineup for who gets to go first, let's talk about your private life. Yeah, we'll get to the stoning. We'll fulfill the Lord of Moses. Don't worry. She'll be dead for sure. But, but before we throw that first stone, let's talk about you guys for a second. He sends them home to their own 
private lives. He gets them to examine their own hearts. What's your sin? What are you hiding? What are we going to stone you for today? Let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Powerful, powerful statement from the living God. From the only man who has any right to judge both her and them. He says, let's take a look at your life. What's the result? Verse 9, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before her. No comeback? Silence and slowly departing Pharisees. It's interesting, John says the older ones leave first. Some commentators say that's because they were older and wiser. They, they saw their sin first and were the first ones to leave. But there's no indication here that these guys learned a thing. There's no indication that they repented. There's no indication that when they saw the sin in their heart, they, they were cut to the heart and put their head on the dashboard and pleaded with God to forgive them. There's none of that here. In fact, at the end of this chapter, they are trying to stone Jesus again. It says the Pharisees and scribe picked up stones to stone him. They got Jesus this time. No repentance. They've just been shown up in the argument. They've just been shamed publicly and so they slink off. There's one who doesn't slink away. There's one who probably has every right to slink away. The woman dragged out of her bed, or his bed, now stands before Jesus alone. And here's the thing, right? She's in a much worse position now. Her captors have gone, her aggressors have left, the people who want to kill her have departed, but now she's standing before the living God. Now she's standing before the one sinless man to have ever lived. She's standing before the one who can judge her, who can condemn her. At least those guys were fellow sinners. But Jesus has the moral high ground. He does look down on her from the judgment throne. He can sentence her to death, eternal condemnation. She is guilty. She's guilty of sin. And now she stands before the judge. Verse 10 and 11. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. Crouches down, writes on the ground, stands up, condemns those men. Reveals their sin to them. Crouches down again, this time he stands up and they're gone. She's there alone and he says, what does he say? Go to hell? Where are those who condemn you? Where are those who have something against you? Where are those who would dismiss you? Where are those who would withhold forgiveness from you? Where are those who would slam the door of the kingdom of heaven in your face and make you a child of hell? Where have they gone? Is there no one left to condemn you? And she sees Jesus without condemnation and says, no one. There's no one. It's you and me. There's no one here. No one will condemn me. I wonder if you've ever experienced that with Jesus. 
Have you ever allowed yourself to experience this with Jesus? She could have run. The guys have gone. Jesus isn't going to rugby tackle her to the ground and make her pay. She knows that, at least, about Jesus. She could have left. She could have left the scene. Have you ever done that when Jesus confronts you? Perhaps when you're in church and we're talking about sin and something comes to mind and you haven't just started thinking about your wife or your husband or your kids' sins and God's got you right where he wants you. Have you ever had the experience of being naked before God and not running away but allowing him to look you in the eye? Jesus stands up and looks her in the eye. Have you ever let him do that? How prone we are to run when that happens. When the holiness of God looks us in the eye, how often we go to water and run. But this woman stays. This woman is confronted. And this woman is forgiven. Let's read the last part of this verse. Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord? Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. The only one who could condemn her doesn't. Reminds me of John 3.16 and 17. Make sure you get them together because they go together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that all who believe in him may not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. God didn't send his son in the world, into the world to condemn the world. He didn't send Jesus on a mission to stand in front of that woman and condemn her, but to save her. And that's what happens. Neither do I condemn you. Go now and sin no more. We get in that one little phrase the two sides of forgiveness. And you need to hear this, all right? You need to hear this. Some scholars believe that this text, this first part of uh, John chapter 8, was taken out of Scripture by some churches in the early church because they were worried that people would read it and then go off and commit adultery, thinking, oh, Jesus is all right with it. He didn't condemn her like he should have. And there is a danger for us this morning to hear Jesus say, neither do I condemn you. Party on, all right? Like, get back to that guy. He's probably still waiting for you. There's a danger that we'll think that way about Jesus. You know, it is that hippie Jesus who will just kind of smoke weed with us all day and and not really care about what we get up to. That's the kind of Jesus some people want. But you've got to see both sides here. Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Both. I don't condemn you, but leave that life of sin. This is what happens with Jesus all the time. You know, he loves to hang out with with the rejects of his day. He loved to hang out with the tax collectors and sinners, the drunkards and prostitutes. That's who he was partying with. And yet every time he meets one of them, they leave changed. First few years of my Christian life, I just kept going to clubs every night of the week and I justified it by saying, well, Jesus did. Yeah, but you drink so much. Yeah, but Jesus did something with wine, all right? And I'm sure they have that at communion. So right, so all these justifications, not knowing that whenever Jesus turned up at the club, everyone left saved. Is that happening when you go? It's going to the TAB and I'm going to influence some people for Jesus, right? Do you leave with empty pockets or do you leave with converts? That's the question. Because everywhere Jesus went, people got saved. 
He would welcome them and accept them and embrace them and love with them and eat with them. But they would leave changed forever. So too you this morning. You need to, you need to hear this. Everyone look right at me now. If you're here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, therefore you are not forgiven by God. You cannot enjoy the forgiveness of Jesus. If this sounds like something you want, if you want spiritual and eternal satisfaction and forgiveness and joy, then you need to know that Jesus will give it to you free of charge, without price, without requiring you to jump through any hoops. But He will also demand everything from you. Christian faith is absolutely free and it will cost you everything. It will cost you a lifelong commitment to walk with Him in holiness. Not because we're so good, but because He is good. Not because we earn our salvation, but because He's earned it for us and calls us to follow Him. And so the two sides of forgiveness here are enjoy my free gift of no condemnation, that is forgiveness, but go and sin no more. And so this is the great message of the gospel. This is what we want to talk about every week, but particularly on Easter Sunday, because without Easter Sunday, none of this matters at all. Without the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, this is just a cute story. Who cares, right? Other people did good things. Without the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus has no right to forgive her. Only God can forgive. You can't just go around saying, you're forgiven, you're forgiven, don't worry about it. Only God can do that. That's why in Mark chapter 2, when Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, the Pharisees say, this guy is going to die. He just said he's God. That's blasphemy. That's why Jesus was killed, ultimately. Blasphemy. He said he was God. He forgives people. Only God can do that, damn it. And so without Resurrection Sunday, none of this makes any difference. None of what I said is of any value. And you will leave today, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you will leave today in your sin without the resurrection of Jesus. So what's the takeaway? What's the one thing I want you to remember? I know you're going to go home, eat too much chocolate, your brain's going to fry, and you're going to forget just about everything I said. But here's what you need to know. The Christian message of hope is one of forgiveness and freedom. Forgiveness and freedom. That's two Fs. That's called alliteration, right? That's so that you remember it. Forgiveness and freedom. Say it with me, brothers and sisters. Forgiveness and freedom. Not just forgiveness of your sin, but freedom from your sin. Not just clearing the record of past debt, but freedom from all future debt. You may be here this morning and you're an alcoholic. Maybe you're addicted to drugs. Maybe you're a serial adulterer, like this woman. Maybe you are entrenched in internet pornography. Maybe, like me, you can't get a rein on your tongue and it destroys people's lives. The hope of the gospel is not just that God forgives you for past sin, but that He frees you from future sin. We have seen people delivered from those things. Those things that plague them by the power of the Holy Spirit. We've seen it. For most of us, it's going to be a lifelong thing. I've been a Christian over 10 years and I'm still struggling with so many things. It makes me so frustrated. Why can't God just zap me? And make me more like this guy. I want to be like this guy. I want to be like Jesus. No hypocrisy. 
God is doing that little by little. God is doing that in our church little by little. Just after the service, speak to some people who can testify Jesus is changing them from the inside out. That's the only change that makes any difference. God not only promises us forgiveness, but freedom. God not only saves us from our sin, but calls us to a life of repentance and holiness. And so this woman walks away forgiven and saved, but called to something greater. Now here's why the church exists. Two things. Keep it really simple. Our church exists so that people will be forgiven and set free. So that people will be saved, come to know Jesus and his redemption that he bought for them on the cross and through his resurrection and then live a life of ongoing sanctification, growing in Christ-likeness, growing away from hypocrisy. If that sounds like anything that you'd be interested in, then let us know. That's all we do here. I, like, I'm employed six days a week and that's all I do, two things. You're not going to be bothering me if you want to do one of those things. I met with a couple of you earlier in the week with Jimmy and, and God bless you, you, you kept saying, I'm really sorry for taking your time. We were like, this is all we do. <laughs> please, please come and chat with us during the week after the service. Fill out a, a card at our connect desk on your way out. Let us, let us share with you what God has done in our lives and what he promises to do in yours, come to me, all who are thirsty. Drink and be satisfied. I'm going to pray that God would lead us this morning to forgiveness and freedom. Let's pray. Father, without your resurrection from the dead on Resurrection Sunday, on Easter Day, all of this is completely meaningless. We've just wasted our time. These words will fall on deaf ears and we have no hope. So please, Lord, first and foremost, give us faith in the death of Jesus and in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Give us faith to believe that everything Jesus said and did was vindicated, was made genuine when he was raised from the dead, conquering Satan, sin and death. Help us to know that Jesus right now is alive. He is risen. He is risen indeed. That he is controlling all things that He is governing all things, that He is God of all things, and that He is calling all people to forgiveness and freedom. This morning, I definitely and particularly want to pray for those who wouldn't call themselves Christians, who wouldn't say that they have been forgiven, who wouldn't identify with being set free. Lord, please open their eyes as You have opened our eyes to know and love the truth of the Gospel. I pray that you would help us as a church to fulfill our two goals. To lead people to faith and to walk with them in holiness. Lord Jesus, what you did for this woman is incredible. It's moving. It's powerful. It's life-changing. Please help us put ourselves in her place to stand before you this morning and to receive that sentence, neither do I condemn you. We thank you for the words of the scriptures. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we thank you for this truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Anglican Church Caroline Springs podcast. 
For more information, go to taccs.org.au.